0: Well, thank you so much, Mark, and thank you all for coming along today, and, and thanks, Mark, for, for the invite. It's great. Uh privilege and pleasure to, to be back. Um, so yeah as it says uh, I'm going to be looking at um, Ypres in particularly in the 20s and 30s and the way this tiny Belgian city and, and very particularly West Flanders um, city really became something akin to a British colony. Now before I go on can I ask has anybody here um, visited the city of Ypres? Oh fantastic so at the, the very least you'll have had a big bar of chocolate because uh, that, that's uh, crucial to, to the city's economy and uh, you know now it's probably being visited um, by about as many numbers as it was in its peak in in the late 1920s and indeed the West Flanders regional government estimates that that tourism and by that they they essentially mean anglophone um, uh, war tourism is worth about 240 million euros a year to the local economy. So, you know, it's absolutely uh, um, crucial to, to that world. Now, just to put the sort of post-war, to get, to get it into its, its uh, immediate perspective, by the end of the war... Epe is a legend across the British Empire, right? It already has this huge status, and that's largely because during the course of the conflict, five great battles are fought around it in total. Um, not all of them um, named after the city, but essentially five battles are fought around it. So here uh, you get a sense of the kind of public rhetoric that's associating, uh, associated with this city in this book that comes out between um, the Battle of the Messines Ridge um, in 1917, Messines just south of Ypres, and the third Battle of um, Ypres, often known as uh, Passchendaele, um, which um, starts on the 31st of July 1917. And look at that very, very high rhetoric. Um, And again, it should straight away... um, Acts as, as, a, as a kind of corollary for us, or as a, uh, as a guide against not taking the Great War, Great Poets as the spokespeople of a generation. Um, this high kind of memorializing rhetoric about the war is the one that's going to be dominant through the twenties and thirties. We can come back to that as, uh, in the questions if you like. Um, and. Notice as well, um, in this very, very deliberately artfully created front cover, the blood redness of the sky, Ypres is associated with sanguinary sacrifice, and the fact that the shell hole in the the Grand Place, the Grosse Marks, is almost poppy shaped. And remember, throughout the 20s and 30s, they're not just poppies, they are Flanders poppies. They are intimately associated with with Belgium and that blood redness of the poppy as well. So, Eep is a kind of essential byword for the Western Front by the end of the war, what does it look like in 1919? Well, well, it has been um, devastated. You know, it, it has been utterly destroyed. In one sense, though, there there is um, a, a, a continuity. The city council has sat throughout the war, but um, Le Touquet, um thats the, where a bulk of the Ipois Iapyrians have gone off to as uh, refugees. And indeed, if you go into Lutuke's little. Um, uh, public park today you'll see a little memorial to to the people of West Flanders and particularly Ypres that that came there as refugees in the war and obviously that is partly to maintain their authority so the British do not see this as a as somewhere that they control through their military presence um, in the area Um, and that's well, that's the west gate of the cathedral. You can see that it um, had uh, had its day rather ruined by the war. Uh, and You can see the remnants of the great medieval cloth hall there as well, Europe's largest secular Gothic building. But within months of the war ending, people start to sneak back. They start coming home. Where do they live? Well, in these prefabricated houses, uh, the biggest of the funds is the King Albert Fund, which is established for prefabricated housing in the, in the devastated region. Um, supply um, is always completely outstripped by demand. By about the summer of 1919, it's estimated there are about 150-odd people back, and it's growing the whole time. And they are living in the heart of Western Europe in the 20th century, essentially a frontier existence, right, they might as well be on the frontier, you know, of of, um, one of the European colonies, there is no running water, there is no electricity, Um, they draw it from from standpipes, um, uh, they have little um, coke oven stoves in in these houses, it is not um, a particularly, you know, happy existence, it's hard life, and um, here, for those of you who have visited Ypres, if you've been to the Reservoir Cemetery, that's right next to it, is, is the main kind of um, temporary housing citadel of, of the, the, the city, um, so there it is, the mini plan, the plan d'amour. Um, and the same is true out, t- out of the town up to the main battlefront. Um, Hogger, as you can see, there's a sign up. This was Hogger, uh, and you can see, or Hooge. Um, and you can see also what happens. The local council buy up old British army Nissen huts, and people are living in those. This is that same spot circa 1921. You can see the Baron de Vink has spent his money-wise. He's already got his chateau well on the way to being restored there. But others are, are still living living in in the temporary housing now as said life is incredibly hard for, for these people there's also as with everything else about Belgium immediately um, a linguistic and cultural divide so obviously it's West Flanders in the Flemish district that the Dutch language district and very very to this day highly stratified by um accent and dialect. You know, people in Ypres can recognise someone who lives at Zonnebeke seven miles up the road very, very quickly. They can recognise people from Poperinge, six miles down the road very quickly because the accent changes uh, and dialect changes are so sort of um, uh, rich in this area. So, of course, French is the language of government um, in Belgium. The Germans during the war have played the card they will play a lot more perniciously in the Second World War, which is Vlamenpolitik, which is to try and split off Vlaams, the Dutch speakers, from Wallonia. And they've been playing that through the Great War. It's not been truly successful because Vlaams is so completely and utterly Roman Catholic um, that they have picked up, the the Catholic bishops have picked up that the Germans in the Great War are forever speaking to the Hague. They want to bring the Netherlands in on their side and of course one of the things they promised the Netherlands is after the war if we're successful maybe the greater Netherlands will come back i.e. you will re-annex Flanders back into the Kingdom of the Netherlands, and there is no way Vlaams, Flanders, is going to go into a Protestant state. So all of this rather collapses. But anyway, in 1919, an, a, a Francophone, as it would be an um, Agricultural Commission, is sent out. They very quickly say, that most of the farmland around Ypres is never going to be farmable ever again, saltwater inundation has come down as far south as Ypres, remember in 1914 the Belgians had smashed the sea locks to flood, literally flood the German advance in, so saltwater had got in to to the water table, Um, plus the problem is north of the Menin Road for those of you who've been out there, sort of the axis road that splits the um, uh, battlefield, north of the Menin Road has been so heavily saturated in mustard gas that they, severe, they, they have severe doubt, again, whether it's ever farmable. Now, of course, that immediately plays into the problem that is Belgium, that the glorious eccentricity that is Belgium, because the locals say, isn't it typical? a French-speaking group come here from Brussels, of all places, and tell us how we are going to lead our lives. And they take no notice of it whatsoever, because the recommendation is that a state forest should be planted, how to forest should be extended, and that it will be a, a forested region. They get out there, being good Catholic families, you know, they and the nine kids, even little few-month-old Matilda, she can hold a spoon in her mouth, she's out there helping to dig the drainage ditches. They are re-digging, the ditches they're getting their lives back on track um, and they are rebuilding their world it is exceptionally dangerous there is unexploded ammunition everywhere, still coming up to this day, the iron harvest. Um, a few months back um, I was talking to the commander of Dovo, the Belgian army bomb disposal unit up at Paul Capella, just north of Ypres, um, and he was telling me that at current finding rates they think there's 150 years more work to be done in West Flanders. Um, that, that, that's how much there is of it. Um, You can also do the incredible thing, um, which is basically you can plot the world price of copper by maiming incidents in West Flanders. Because as the price of copper goes up, the driving bands on the shelves are all copper. So it's worth more to go out and do that. Um, And um, yeah, arms blown off, hands blown off. Um, Working out that statistic and the fact that I'm still married really is is a miracle, to be honest. and, of course, these people, a lot of them, are taking over British military infrastructure. This is how they live. So this is a, um, a an art Royal Artillery observation post at Potija, at Hussar Farm, and you can see the couple with their little they've moved in. They're living in this amazing world, and they're sharing it with the British Army. The British Army does not leave the Western Front until September 1921, that's how much of a clean-up operation is in place, and this is the Graves Registration Unit at work. Mm-hmm. Um, their job to go out, they're doing this across the, the battlefields of the Western Front, to find the corpses, to bring them in, uh, to collectivise them, essentially, for burial. Um, and it's incredibly psychologically and physically hard, challenging work, these guys right they're they're told what you're meant to do is you go out if you see any great signs of wildflowers or particularly lush grass dig there because that will be separating bodies quite literally fertilizing the soil anywhere where there's mass evidence of great rat activity that will be rats eating gorging on the bodies you start digging there Um, as these guys um, you know in in their quite at times harrowing testimony uh, show the glory is when you dig up a skeleton. Skeletons are all right. They can cope with skeletons. It's when you put your hands in and the body rips apart and the stench comes out and they say for the rest of their lives, they never get that smell out of their nose. Um, So they're doing this. They're doing this this kind of work, this incredibly harrowing work. You know, whilst the locals are trying to rebuild their world, what's going on around them. um, And, you know, questions... As will be asked in in places like late 19th century London, you know, about things like the shambles yards, the butchery yards. Should should children ever be allowed to see this kind of thing, even kind of accidentally, on their way to school? Because um, there are coffins everywhere, there are people being dug up everywhere and being moved around. But by the same token, there's also a sense in which this is going to become a tourist playground. This is the great Bruce Bans father, he of um, old Bill fame, if you know of a better old, go to it. And um, the great War, predicting, in 1916, that Eep will become a tourist attraction. So there you are. pay your shilling. To go in to the tourist zone, um, to the mine craters, where well, there'll be explosions daily, I do like that. And what's particularly brilliant, at the ration dump you can see a display of real swearing by men of the Royal Warwick, so um, a great piece of sort of military culture there. Um, and indeed, tourists start to arrive. Believe it or not, the first tourist bus to go out on a battlefield tour leaves Ypres in March 1919. So as soon as the winter snow really melts off and what you can't quite see is that bus there says excursions on it. Um, This is May 1919, this photograph is taken so people start to arrive. And of course in the first instance, as this lovely um, engraving from the Illustrated London News will show you, um, it is of course people of a certain class. It takes quite a bit of money to get out there. Remember, it's a destroyed infrastructure. Being able to get in to these places is very tricky. And indeed, the British and French governments do not allow normal cross-channel traffic to resume until July 1919, because particularly the Dover-Calais route is ta- and Dover-Zubruga is taken up with military stores going to the army of occupation in Cologne. Um, So getting over the channel is exceptionally difficult. You also need, what is then um, agreed, is a War Graves Pass. If you haven't got a full passport, you must apply for a War Graves Pass. And the only way you can get a War Graves Pass from the Imperial War Graves Commission is to prove that you're visiting an actual War Grave. So in other words, not a tourist. You can't just be going there to gulp, you have to be going there to see the grave of a loved one because it is still a militarised zone you know, and they are trying to control the number of people that are coming in. And the French and Belgian governments are very keen to control the number of people coming in because they of course are saying, look, we haven't got running water, we can barely feed the people in the devastated zone, the zone rouge as the French government call it, um, you know, let alone hordes of anglophones arriving and trying to see them round it, this kind of landscape. But people come, nonetheless, here here in New Zealand, tourists, um, in, the, the, in the Grand Place in 1920. And here, though, is where a big semantic difference comes in, into the rhetoric, into the public discourse, right? Because what come, emerges really quickly in 1919 is, are you visiting the old Western Front as a tourist or a pilgrim? Right, with all of the associations, the, the medievalism of, of that word, you know, a pilgrim is going to visit a war grave, a pilgrim is going on some kind of spiritual journey, you don't want to be just a tourist gulping at these sites now who would have thought who would have thought this was ever possible the british tend to be quite xenophobic about this i know something that you thought quite weird for the british um and of course the people who are most often labeled as tourists are yanks americans will come as tourists they have no idea what this war means they just want to go they want to buy up souvenirs they'll chuck their dollars around whereas we are pilgrims um, and and there was one of the big differences put in Um, and there's very definitely what would be classified as a pilgrim a widow and her son at the grave of her husband at the Reservoir Cemetery there um, in in Ypres Um, and there pilgrims, Irish pilgrims, at the Munster Cross, one of the earliest memorials to go up, which is in a very deliberately placed um, just outside the cloisters of the cathedral, making that point about shared Catholicism um, as well there. But, as, as I was saying, you know, getting there can be quite tricky. So here's the South and Chatham Railway, um, advising a poster campaign in the, the spring and into the summer of 1920, telling people, owing to the existing conditions affecting continental travel, intending passengers are advised to make their journey arrangements well in advance. And that essentially means if you want to visit the Western Front, you know, you've got to make sure your passport is fully there. And if you, ha- if you can't afford a passport, you've got to make sure that you have one of the um, Wargraves passes because otherwise, you know, you're not going to be a- allowed in to this zone. But an industry is growing up straight away, so here is um, the Franco-British Tours, the Battlefield Tours Deluxe um, uh, advertising in 1920. Led by ex-officers, because you wouldn't want to go with another rank, would you, or an NCO. They might have regional accents, they might drop their H's. This is high class, you know, uh, it's got a Bedford Row uh, address, so uh, a Bloomsbury address. You can be sure on there. there's the itinerary, they will take you round, um, and so you'll have someone interpreting the site, you know, who is an expert for you. So here's that way of kind of trying to make, shall we say, give tourism a higher higherfalutin, a cultural edge to it. You're not just there. to to gawp. But, you could also go with the great Battlefields Bureau, um, uh, led by um, Lieutenant Colonel E.P. Corston. Now Corsten's one of my great heroes of this early days of sort of battlefield tourism uh, uh, at there, which is just west of Epa. If we, we could easily make a film about him, it strikes me, and, and I'm going to date myself here, and it's all right because I'm not talking to any of my students, so you'll expect, you, I know you'll understand this reference. If we were to make a film, film about him, Corsten would have to be played by Terry Thomas right there is something a little bit that regimental tie regimental crest blazer and all that perhaps a baoc bag always dodgy um, and you know a little bit of a crook there in some ways a little you wouldn't want to buy a second-hand car it strikes me sometimes from from Corson but you know a man committed to trying to get people round the salient um, to look um, uh, to, to look at the the sites and here you see how it's become uh, a tourist industry. Red cars of Blankenberg. And in this great program of excursions they do, you know, number one, top of the list, is Ypres. So it's not medieval Bruges, you know, it's not to see the wonders of Ghent or anything like that, no, it's to get yourself to see the battlefields. And that mixture of, of kind of remembrance, genuine remembrance, genuine commemoration and out and out kind of tourists gaping. So they um, it says, you know, that you will see Hellfire Corner. Um, you can see uh, Hill 60. I'll come back to Hill 60. You can see the Canadian Memorial at St. Julian. But you will also... Be able to see. Now, where, where does it say? The, the tanks at Paul Capella, yes, you want to see the tanks. Everybody loves a ruined tank. There is a site on the Menin Road known as the Tank Graveyard, where a whole bunch of them got hit in the third battle and their ruins are sort of strewn across uh, roughly, if, if you know your kind of um, British colloquialisms, where Clapham Junction used to be on the Menin Road. Um, and people chalk their names on that, They have their picture taken next to it, they clamber on top of the tanks, they file bits off of it to put in their pocket to take home as a souvenir. So the tank cemetery, so you know, you you do this kind of tourist track as well. Um, and in Ypres itself, the great Captain Parmenter, is running his wiper's auto services. He's buried in the city cemetery. He marries uh, a local woman, and I'll come back to the sort of Anglo-Belgian community in a bit. And Michelin, of course, are in from its earliest days. Michelin produces its first battlefield tourism guide in 1917, when the war is still on. When the Germans retreat there to what the British call the Hindenburg Line, you know, the Germans, the Siegfried. The ground that they give up, you know, Michelin saying people want to see it. Um, I'm currently writing a book about battlefield tourism. You know, this is a little bit of a a kind of um, detail from that that wider project that you're seeing. Um, And the first formal battlefield tour that I can work out that leaves Britain of people actually going to see battle sites goes out on the 28th of December 1914, they go down to the Marne to to explore um, uh, the sites. Um, now, the other side though, you know, if you're going as a pilgrim, all of those institutions that are there on the Western Front throughout the Great War to look after the physical and moral well-being of, of Tommy, um, to keep him out of certain kinds of bars essentially and meeting certain kinds of young lady, um, so the Salvation Army, the Church Army, the YMCA, all of those in 1919 turn their infrastructure over to war graves visitors. So you can stay in their huts, in their hostels, their accommodation. But that is the point. You have to prove that you're visiting a Wargrave. They will not allow you to book in unless you can do that. They're also running um, subsidised trips for poor people. Basically, all of them say and the War Office supplements this with a one-off grant in 1921. They say, this is what it costs us, this is cost, you know, to get you out there to the grave and back again. If you can afford it, please send it to us. If you can't, send us what you can afford. If you can't afford that, don't worry, we'll take you. because they're desperate, you know, they really, they understand the, the, the need for, for, you know, bereavement, to so see through its process, to, to visit the grave, or, of course, the site where, where someone went missing. So there's that, or you could go and stay in one of the new knocked-up hotels. So this is the Excelsior, for those of you who know your Ypres, if you had a beer in Les Halles, that's the site that uh, was built on, on that site. So you see the Sharabank about to go out round the battlefield there. Or you could go up to the London Garage and Tea Room, very close to where the Menningate Memorial now is. That's a very early one. You can see there's still soldiers around, not demobilised. And that's the view, essentially from, from the Menningate, looking out where the Menningate Memorial will end up being built. Um, and you can see all up the hotels. you can see the horse-drawn bus there, that's there to take people on uh, tourism trips. Here's the Priana Hotel, where it starts, that's it, when it goes into its grand final phase of, of rebuilding. Um, and there, moved into a bigger hut, and then when it built itself, it, it's really big, plush new hotel. And what's lovely here, you might just be able to see the hoarding on this building says, War Souvenirs, so you can go and buy your nice little souvenir there. Um, now, in the midst of all of this, um, the British government, uh, led by Winston Churchill, the Secretary of State for War, has decided that because Ypres is so important to the whole British Empire, the ruins of it should be bought lock, stock and barrel and left in ruins, in perpetuity. And there would be a zone of silence, was the idea. So, in other words, when you got pretty much to the edge of the cathedral ruins, you were all meant to stop talking and you would process through the ruins till you got out of the Menningate rampart and then you could start speaking again and you were to sort of contemplate what the British Empire had done to buy the freedom and security of the world. Now Churchill dumps this idea onto Fabian Ware, the chairman, um, the vice chairman of the Imperial War Graves Commission and... Fabian Ware, I think, probably comes close to swallowing his false teeth and having a coronary about this. Hey, like, can I just get this right? You want to buy the ruins of an entire city. Oh yeah, says Winston. And he kind of says, and you're not worried about the fact that the locals are moving back and that will mean chucking them all out. No, 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 says Winston. They won't mind that. They know it's us. They know, it's the they know what they owe us. Um... And sort of where it says, and you don't think really we went to war in order to allow Belgians to be free and live the kind of life that they want? Churchill sort of ignores that and says, get on with it. Where does what any great administrator should do, you know, when faced with something like this? He sits on it for a very long time and he basically allows you the de facto return of local people to to make the plan null and void. Of course, the the, the flip side to it is um, that both the Belgian government and and the city council say um, that you can have the other great prime historic site in the city, which is the site of the old Vauban Menin Gate, you know, the gateway to the battlefields, and you can build a a memorial there, and that will be the, the flip side of all of this. And in all this, we get the great Lieutenant Colonel Henry Beckles Wilson, Canadian, um, lived up at Quebec House, um, up at Westerham. It was him that gave it to, to the National Trust, um, and he's Town Major of EP in 1919, and he writes this very early guidebook with this incredibly resonant title, Holy Ground of British Arms. And you can see there you know what what he's um, uh, the, the, again the high diction about Epe, that this kind of blood soaked um, landscape in which it 's often during the war and even post war um, Epe is is called the British Calvary. It's the British Empire's Calvary. You know, so the Minin Road almost becomes the Imperial Via Dolorosa. It is where, in imitation of Christ, British soldiers took up their rifle and pack, their imitation of their cross, and went to their glorious martyrdom. Um, And remember, that's always the high language of of the Great War. No one is ever killed in the Great War. The newspapers never, ever really say that mass were killed. Instead, they sacrifice themselves. Agency, power, remains theirs. Those soldiers gave themselves in the cause, right? And therefore, That means huge casualty figures, or implications of huge casualty figures, can be and are constantly delivered to the British people, but the spin on it is heavily controlled, right? So never think that British people throughout the Great War don't know what's going on. They know it is a bloody and often muddy mess out there. It's the way it's being sold to them that's extremely complex, you know, and sophisticated. Now Beckles Wilson himself has um, a little house knocked up for himself on on the ramparts um, where he, that's him with, with Lord Beaverbrook up there, and then he quickly puts up a sign saying this ground is reserved for Canada. We're going to build a memorial here and have a museum when Sir Robert Borden, the Canadian Prime Minister, comes. Um, he says, this, we're, we're having this, sir. Isn't it nice? Oh, yes, very nice, says Robert Borden. Have you asked the locals? Don't worry about that. He says. we'll sort that out later. Um, so it, it is, I say, it's kind of like an imperial frontier in that sense. So you know, people staking the claim. So Canada is meant to be having that bit. And he says, we have to do this because the locals won't get it either. They don't understand. Because they were forced out as refugees and they didn't really see any of this, they won't get it and they will just cheapen it. Because they will come back and they set up their old festivals, like the Tuinsduck, the Great August Festival. And again, this drives people like Beckwith Wilson to distraction, but other voices, thankfully there are other voices, um, Anglophone voices, saying, well that's what we fought for, didn't we? That's exactly what it's about. Um, That's not cheapening. You know, this is the Belgians leading the life that they wanted. And also in all of this, the British can be hypocritical because, of course, the sheer fact that there is a big tourist infrastructure coming in is because the Brits have created it. Even if they came in like the most, you know, penitent medieval pilgrim on their knees, at some point they're going to want to sleep somewhere. At some point they're going to want to drink beer and eat chips, which is what every tourist of Belgium has ever done, which is great. Um, And so the British stimulate this market. So by sort of condemning simply locals as, as, as somehow commercialising it is missing the um, the role that the British and Imperial visitors are playing, you know, in creating it. Um, and that also means that that distinction, you know, then as now, between is an invidious one. Everyone, it strikes me, moves between those two positions the whole time they're there. I mean, I'm there. "You so, once a fortnight, I'm, I'm in Ypres. My wife and kids think I live there and just come home for clean underwear, really. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm moving always between the hat of pilgrim and tourist. Um, the whole time, you know, it's blurring. And it, just as it is for those people. And incidentally, what you might just be able to see in the background, there are two Indians, some Indian soldiers with their puggaris, with their turbans, their guys from the Indian Labour Corps. You know, they would have been cleaning up the battlefields and, and, and removing corpses as well into the cemeteries. Now, the big place that exercises a lot of people is the so-called, is the British Tavern. And in that brilliant way, you know, where where almost like Peter Aykroyd says about London, the way a kind of deep history replicates itself, that is now the site of Eep Burger. Brilliant, eh? That there is there's a burger bar on, on this exact same spot, um, and the British tavern um, is, is regarded as slightly hideous. And this is almost certainly written by Beckles Wilson for the Times. Um, the new EEP is a place of estaminets, of mobs of picture postcard hawkers, of charabancs and pleasure omnibuses, of souvenir hunters and noise. There is a so-called British tavern in the Grand Place itself, and the road to the Menin Gate is lined with places of refreshment in the town and its vicinity. There are 135 cafes and a and everywhere among the tumbled heaps of bricks and plaster, stone and girders, men are eagerly hammering and building to increase the number. So you see, you know, just by the autumn of nineteen nineteen, what a, what a hotbed of activity this is. And I said that the, the the Brits are playing the major stimulating role, and they do. Then, as now, anywhere where the Brits go, as we know, like to make themselves feel at home. Um, so there's. Haig House, which is um, the, the Wipers' Times bar um, now. It's Haig House, the British Legion headquarters. A few years back when um, a house was being restored, this was uncovered, this wonderful old British Legion sign from the 1930s. And you could make sure you kept yourself in your anglophone bubble because you could go to the tea room where you get a good strong cup of English tea or you could stay at the Hotel Bristol, British proprietor. That means the toilet will be all right. Um, uh, with William Frankham, ex-serviceman leading that and the tea room still there there it is 1925 there it is today run by the wonderful Vandala family the great Carl the chocolatier um, it's always great when you buy your chocolates from Carl because he's a, a, a master's um, graduate in classical languages so you can buy your chocolate in ancient Greek from him and he likes all that um, so you know that these things are still rambling on today and then if what you want to do is really get yourself a great souvenir you bundle out to hill 60 Hill 60, just outside, is the heart of the Western Front souvenir industry. Now, as Henry Williamson um, says in in his wonderful book, *The Wet Flanders Plain*, you know the veteran. You might know him better, really, as as author of things like *Tarka the Otter*. um, He says when he visits Hill 60 in 1925, there is more stuff in it now than we ever fired at it during the war, right? Because each night, it was well known, each night that the, the souvenir sellers would come, bury stuff, and of course as the Charabanc the buses appeared in the morning, it was, oh, look, madam, German Luger, look, just found it. Um, yours, 15, uh, 15 francs, lovely, off you go. You're happy, um, and there's, you can go and visit the tunnels. There's this wonderful, I do love the, the Miles Kingdom Franglais here. Don't let you be misled. No, don't let you be misled. You know, these are the real tunnels you pay. You see she's got a little um, souvenir stall there. You go through the turnstile, you go under the tunnels under Hill 60, um, walk through the trenches, go up the observation tower. That's all great stuff. That went down in the second world war. The Germans needed metal. Um, see, so you can wander through, have a nice time. Um, and then, once you were done, you could go to the No Man's Land Canteen, where you can get yourself a nice British owl or a stout um, and proper cigarettes. And there's the No Man's Land Canteen. So uh, what I find you're absolutely fascinating about this, particularly when I'm dealing with my students you know, most of whom, or a lot of whom, would have come to the Great War through the literature trail, as it were, rather than the history. So they're, absolutely convinced you know that Wilfred Owen is everywhere and to show them this you know essentially through the 20s and 30s you can have great war fun Um, and it's possible And, and as many veterans are indulging in this you know don't think this is just kind of outsiders as it were veterans love this and indeed veterans and the bereaved when they go on joint pilgrimages sometimes can have a little bit of friction between them because the emotional atmosphere, you know, is so different. Because what that poor, you know, bereaved wife or mother or sister can't understand is why all his old mates from his old company, as soon as the sun gets over the yardarm, it's all about that. And it's all about singing all the old songs. And it's all about singing the old songs with the filthiest verses that they can remember. Because that's what Frank would have wanted us to do. So they have that, poor Frank's wife or sister can't get that at all. She's heartbroken. So you often see in those kind of what we might call mixed groups, they start to give each other a little bit of space. You know, that they will do slightly separate things at certain points in the day, and maybe come together at other points, because the veteran has got a different way of going through this landscape compared with the bereaved. Now Hill 60 becomes, is so important, you know, it makes front page News um, when it's finally bought for the nation and it's handed over to the IWGC, you know, now the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, who manage the site um, to this day. So, front page news, you are know, in a mass circulation daily newspaper reporting that, that it has been purchased. Now, what else can you do? Well, you can go to the EAP Salient War Museum, run by the great Leo Murphy, and again, notice that, that the kind of um, emotional um, atmosphere or sentiment of this from, from his testimonials in The Visitor's Book. So there's Lieutenant Colonel Graham seated Hutchinson. Hutchinson um, a conducted tour around the museum by Mr Murphy is a cross between a Prime Minister's speech and a first-class musical turn. Because you know he delivered all the passion. His favourite bit of kit that he had was um, uh, a heavy British shell, which had a German gas shell that had gone into it, and both had failed to explode. You know, I think he liked to give them a bit of a kick when he went round to see if people flinched. Um, and then in 1939, you know, with Belgian neutrality and then and then uh, British visitors unable to get in. Of course, he he comes home and he brings his war museum home with him, um, and he sets it up in Brighton. And who would have thought it? A war museum in. Brighton in the middle of the Blitz, a great war museum, doesn't go down a bundle and he doesn't make too much money from it. Um, after the war he's declared bankrupt and then what sort of tragically in 1949 the whole collection is sold for scrap metal. I mean it's just frightening to think what he had. Um, uh, there he is on uh, his British Information Bureau, the, the little pasta shop, for those of you who know your eat near the, the Belgian War Memorial, and there are his daughters um, outside the entrance in the Meat Hall. He was in the, the, the Meat Hall, and you might just be able to see, unlike modern museology, you know, Murphy believed in the great old principle of pile it up. And there was nothing minimalist about him and just the odd label though, um, and then you wandered around and looked at all these helmets and guns and everything else. Now, the other thing that's happening, you know, what you might say on the higher kind of emotional, spiritual level, but equally helping to turn it into a British colony is the fact that the Imperial War Graves Commission you know, is busy in the 1920s making the war cemeteries, you know, the temporary cemeteries, permanent, and here you see one at the White House Cemetery at Saint-Jean, at Saint-Jean, in its transformation. You can see some of the um, uh, permanent architectural features are in place, the Cross of Sacrifice, the Stone of Remembrance, and then the headstones, you know, will start to come out. and of course, it's it's absolutely um, nailed down by the, in 1927 the the amazing spectacle, um, you know, and the breathtaking one to this day of, of the, the Menin Gate Memorial being unveiled on the 24th of July 1927, and in that Uville stone, in that Portland stone. I mean, very clearly, just in, in its very material, its very fabric, delineating itself from its Flemish surrounding. That, that honey and red brick of, of Flanders, you know, very, very different here um, in the, the, the stark whiteness of the Menin Gate. Um, and there it is on, on unveiling day, the memorial to the missing and the memorial to the British armies that had defended Ape um, through the, the four years of war. Now, what else is needed in this infrastructure? Well, the other thing, one of the other memorials, which the church army is uh, originally very interested in, is some kind of chapel. If people are going to visit, they're going to want to, they are going to need spiritual comfort, spiritual nourishment. So the church army is very keen on a church or a chapel. Reginald Blomfield is asked to make designs. Originally, um, the plan was it would be at the Lille Gate. Some of you might have been to the Lille um, Gate Cemetery, but he very quickly realises it won't take the weight of the um, Foundations, so they have to look for a site in town, um, and the EEP League helps build that. Let's skip through there a little bit. That's probably too much detail. There you are, St George's. Um, is finally completed in March 1928, and of course, what that does is again slightly segregate the, the, the British, um, the, the the now fairly indigenous. There's a there's a big, a lot of people that per, British people that permanently live in and around EEP from the locals. It's very um, sensitive in terms of religion, being so deeply Roman Catholic. The incumbents of St. George's have to sign a solemn declaration that they will never ever try to proselytize anyone to Protestantism. You mustn't do that. It doesn't have a full ring of bells, to begin with, again, because it mustn't disturb Catholic services. And it doesn't have a font, to begin with. Terrifying, uh, you know, the the Catholic Church is very, very scared, uh, or not so much scared, because it has more power, but, you know, shall we say, suspicious of what's going on here. But the Anglican Church is only too keen, you know, to to maintain good relations, so it goes along with with all of that. And what's creating... um, uh, uh, some issues here, or what's create- making things more complicated, is the fact that the IWGC's employees, you know, the gardeners, the caretakers of the cemeteries, are overwhelmingly British veterans. Now, some of them have bought out their British families, wives, children. A lot marry local women, and they start to have children. By the mid-twenties, those gardeners are suddenly thinking, oh, they're coming up to school age. Where are they going to go to school? And another issue is is starting to hit them. So many of them, because they often live with mum and the grandparents, like the Duns here, they're monolingual. They're essentially monolingual. They either speak West Flanders Dutch or they speak French. They can't speak in English. So what's going to happen to them? The Commission agrees to build a school and Eton, steps in because of the EAP League, a remembrance movement. General Pulteney and, G- and Field Marshal Plumer step in and a school is built and donated to the British community in EPA, the Eton Memorial School, to the 242 Etonians who were killed in the salient in the war and it opens its gates in the um, autumn of 1931. And what happens in that is quite phenomenal, really, because at no point does anyone recognise that quite a lot of these kids are hyphenated. In other words, they're Anglo-French or Anglo-Belgian. Only a very tiny minority are pure British at this school. That hyphen is never recognised. The moment you walk into that school, you are British. Um, Everything is done in the English language. I've been, over the last couple of years, tracking down the the, the kids that went to that school, the youngest of them, you know, now in his late 80s, and and interviewing them about their their experiences in that. And they remember, you know, they remember uh, um, some of the kids who arrived only monolingual in Dutch or or French, Um, but they soon had that sort of uh, smacked out of them, shall we say, at times, that they they, they start, that everything's done in, in English. Two great events in the year, as you might imagine. Empire Day is massive. Armistice day is massive. Um, and it all reflects the incredible thing. You know, uh, uh, this, uh, you know this wonderful archive we're in here, um, and it just makes me think, at Kew, at the National Archives, I managed to find the Ministry of Education, the Board of Education, files on the school. It, they, um, they sent out a school inspector from the London School Board to, to make an assessment. And... You're not meant to laugh out loud, are you? But I couldn't help it. I read this report and at one moment I just burst out laughing at Q and very quickly hid under the desk because the inspector said we must at all costs fight off the insidious influence of the foreign mother-in-law here yeah, very fine and quite right because you know foreign in or foreign granny might be bringing them up as Catholics will probably be probably telling them the wrong language the wrong history the wrong tradition um, and so they're going to come into this school and be made Brits right and, and that indeed is what happens to, to them in this process. And because there is such a large um, uh, British community, so here's uh, William Godden. I spoke to his grandson, George, because George's dad, when he was demobbed from the army in India in the 1920s, in the mid-20s, his father said to him, "Look, I've got a job with the commission, you come here, I'm sure there's plenty of work for you. And his dad ended up being uh, the verger um, at uh, St. George's. So we have this great community that grows up, this fascinating one. You can see their graves today in Ypres, city cemetery and you get these wonderful new uh, dynasties so there's harry fisher and his wife Artemis de Kuhlmann Fischer. You don't get many of those to the pound, do you? Um, you know, and so these incredible kind of hybrid dynasties are created, which has led Ypres to be, you know, the fascinating place that it is to this day. Incidentally, there's a, there's a very traumatic kind of end to this story in 1940 with the Nazi invasion, which we can go into in a moment, if you like, in, in questions. But what I'll do, I mean, yes, let Joy be unconfined. I'm going to shut up. Um, I hope what you've tried to um, you sort of picked up on there that my major points about the Western Front and particularly Ypres in the 1920s, 1930s is kind of what what an intense layer cake it is, there are so many things going on, there are locals returning trying to rebuild their own world there are Brits arriving who are both tourists and pilgrims, there are permanent British agencies or Anglophone Imperial agencies on the ground like the Imperial War Graves Commission and within this fairly concentrated geographical space at times they are jostling but at many other times which is really the most interesting bit they're kind of coming together in an amazing fusion which is still perceptible in and around EPA today thank you all very much for listening